forget you, Barbara. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Groovy. We all go a little mad sometimes. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Why are you shut up? I'm scared to close my eyes. I'm scared to open them. Hold on! Hello, and welcome back to Gavin's Death versus the Forces of Evil, where each episode we delve into another dark corner of horror to select a genre, subject, or topic to stay. Ah, I knew I'd end up messing <laughs> it up. I could feel it coming, and I was doing so well. <laughs> I'm not doing it again. <laughs> select the genre, subject, or topic to dissect and submit an entry to a guest judge in an attempt to win a point that will total up through the course of the season. Joining me as always, if Gremlins couldn't exist without Gizmo, I miss Stripe. Gavin Thomas, how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. I Every week I struggle with that. I don't know why I didn't write that shorter for the first episode, because now I've given myself a tongue twister every week to deal with. <laughs> Uh, so this week we're getting a little bit festive. We're coming up to that time of year again. Am I going to ask the controversial question that gets us arguing for 20 minutes every time over whether Die Hard's a Christmas film or not? What is a Christmas film? What makes a good one? Right. So a Christmas film is something where a lesson is learned specific to Christmas and a change occurs as a result of that lesson. So for that reason and that reason alone, Die Hard and The Long Kiss Goodnight, which are both wonderful films, and not Christmas films, but films set at Christmas. But The Polar Express, which is a terrible film, is a Christmas film. <laughs> Polar Express always reminds me of uh, Robert Shaw's line in Jaws, which is cold, dead eyes. <laughs> Just <laughs> like dolls eyes every time. Um, I'm not having a Die Hard's a Christmas film. I won't accept it. It's about a man trying to get back together with his ex-wife to spend Christmas with his family. There's a Christmas party. He has to like, overcome hurdles. Yes, those hurdles happen to be terrorists with AK-47s or whatever they might be. But it's a Christmas film. Where's he run away to? Sorry, my son was disagreeing that the Polar Express wasn't a good film. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to quickly go on there. So joining us to discuss whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas film and other things is Alice Taylor Matthews. Alice is a comedian. She works at the Brighton Improvis not Brighton, Bristol Improvisational Theatre. This is going very well this week. So yeah, far. I know. It's almost like we haven't done this before. Uh, where she she runs a, a Dungeons and Dragons related show. She's also worked in cinema programming. And uh, as somebody who knows cinema and is actually funny, I do feel slightly out of our depth. But uh, Alice, what makes a good Christmas film for you? Um, for me, a Christmas film obviously has to be generally set at Christmas. That would be the first thing. Um, <laughs> Christmas, I think, has to be in jeopardy in a good Christmas film. Like there has to be some sort of like, oh, no, if this doesn't happen, then Christmas won't happen. Uh, so there's like an element of saving Christmas or, or something like that. And I think redemption is a really important thing in a Christmas movie. People learn lessons, um, particularly people who start off as either um, cold or withdrawn or isolated in some way. And then by the end of the movie are warm and embracing. Um, I also think uh, a good Christmas movie, you have to have 
people coming together who have differences and it explores that even though we all might have differences we all have one thing in common which is we all love Christmas <laughs> so dialogue <Yeah>. yeah <laughs> that's what I said <laughs> what makes a Christmas film for you though Steph um, I'll be honest despite you asking I don't think I dissected what makes a good Christmas film quite as much as since me and you started talking I had never really considered it I, I think it's exactly that. It's trying to bring people together at Christmas to show the love and affection for each other and having to overcome those obstacles to be there. Die Hard. It's Die Hard. It's the perfect Christmas film. <laughs> <laughs> so, Gav, in case you hadn't guessed it by the chat so far, this week is all about Christmas horror. So do you want to kick us off and show us what you've got for us? Certainly. And once again, I've gone uh, route, route one, really. And I've picked Gremlins. Oh, what do you mean, once again? <laughs> <laughs> once again, I've gone route one. You, the one who rebels. <laughs> well, you know, Exorcist was route one. Okay. I'll, I'll admit that 70s Dracula film was less route one. But yeah, I've gone, uh, I've gone Gremlins. Uh, I will do a synopsis, but if anyone listening to this pod doesn't know Gremlins, God help us all. Uh, I. <laughs> A young man has brought a present of a mysterious creature by his father with some very, very clear rules, and the rules are broken, and hundreds of tiny monsters attack a small American town. What is it? It's your new pet. Number one, you got to keep him out of bright light. Number two, keep him away from water. This is incredible. And probably the most important thing, don't ever feed him after midnight. Billy, what are these things? Gremlins. How come a cute little guy like this can turn into a thousand ugly monsters? Mrs. Deagle. I'll bet every kid in America would like to have one. They might even replace the dog as the family pet. It's it's one of the great 80s films. It's one of the great family horror films, if that's such a thing. And I, I think for me, it's the, the great Christmas film as well. And all three of us have said the things that make a Christmas film and they have all of those. So I'm going to start with my first chapter in discussing Gremlins, which I'm calling How Not to Adult, because it's a film where none of the adults in it are actually functioning human beings, really. Billy's dad is a terrible inventor, but terrible dad as well. You know, kind of, we all have children. I'm not going to spend a lot of my time in Chinese junk shops buying presents for, uh, for my children. All the other adult characters in it are just horrific characters. Miss Deagle, Mr. Flutterman. There's no actually good adult characters in it. And Billy on the cusp of adulthood is at the point where but Billy makes poor decisions as well. And all the adult characters in it are just kind of reliving the past of their parents as well. 
this, there's really, really simple rules that they're given. And the, the Chinese man said, you know, you're not ready for this responsibility. And he's right. It's a, it's a film when nobody's quite ready for the responsibilities that are laid upon them. Billy's dad isn't ready for the responsibility. Billy isn't ready for the responsibility. The science teacher, Mr. Anson, not ready for the responsibility of looking after it. It's about the relationship between fathers and sons and fathers and daughters. There's loads of very difficult relationships in there. And lots of the adults are just quite unpleasant. And I almost forgot how unpleasant some of the adult characters in it were. Mrs. Deagle is genuinely horrific. She's threatening to kill the dog. Miss, Mr. Flutterman makes a fairly inappropriate gesture to a, <laughs> to, to a woman more than half his age. Just, and he's married. Yeah, and he's married, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, the, the, there's no positive characters or adult characters in it, really, for me. And I think they, even at some of the character decisions are really weird. So when Billy finds Mr. Anson dead in a school, he, he doesn't go and tell someone and say, look, your science teacher's just been murdered. He, he runs out in the street. No one's making kind of logical decisions in it. Yeah, I, I appreciate it's not an entirely logical situation. It's not an entirely well, logical film, let's be honest. It's fun, but it's not entirely logical for any of it. If you're going to play logic, it kind of falls down to a list. Oh, yeah. No, don't wait. <laughs> wait, wait till you get to my fourth chapter when I start arguing <laughs> quite serious social political motives behind the film. Yeah, and, it, and it's a film about poor parenting as well. The, the, none of the parents are very strong, very good. And there's one scene when the guy can't even remember his name who's selling the Christmas trees, and for no apparent reason, his child is dressed as a Christmas tree. It's, it's, it's just full of parents just going, no, this isn't a good idea. But more, there's more serious than that, I think, as well. It's about, the, it's about responsibility. It's about our responsibility and how do we fulfil our responsibilities to our children? How do we fulfil our responsibilities to society? But it never really... That's one thing, even at the end, I don't think you really get the sense of responsibility. There's no real lesson learned by, by Billy and by his dad. The guy from the curio shop turns up and says, I told you it wasn't there. you weren't ready for it. And nobody's taken responsibility for, I'm going to say half a dozen deaths at least. That was kind of... <laughs> well... You say that you know that his father some relationships and some of the some of the adults are not very good. The father just he just fucks off. Like Christmas Eve, he's like, "Oh, sorry, I've got to go to a, a little uh, inventors conference thing that's happening <laughs> and meet the robot from Lost in Space," and <laughs> he just pisses off with his what's it called? What's the box called? The the bathroom the buddy. The bathroom buddy. He's got to piss off with his bathroom buddy, which is. Obviously, crap. It does such a weird little subplot in it that he's an inventor. Like I don't know why. <laughs> I don't really know what it adds. But, but the, that's it's one so of the, bizarre. That's one of the points. Apart from the guy who doesn't sell him Gizmo, all the adults are selfish in their actions. His dad is selfish in his actions. He, you know, he what needs to go off. He needs to sell these things. Uh, Mister Flutterman's. Uh, Selfish in his actions. 
Mrs. Deagle's exceptionally selfish in her actions. There's, there's no really positive characters happening in it. I would like to stand up for the mum for a minute. The mum's oh, great. No, no that is true. The mum. <laughs> she's, she's great. She's making Christmas cookies. She's supportive of her terrible husband, <laughs> who she loves. I think the thing with um, Billy and, and his dad is they're, they're both dreamers. Billy is an artist and, and very much a dreamer, and his dad is an inventor, very much a dreamer. And even though they're kind of their creative outlets are very different, they're very similar in a lot of ways. Um, and I think I think you're meant to feel sad about the dad. I think you know he's you know there's a line in the movie about you know um, his dad proposed to his mum under this place and. Um, Phoebe Kate's character is like, yeah, everyone's dad proposed to their mum. Yeah. It's like a small town. It's, um, it's in the pub, I, I think, isn't it? They're trying yeah, to get the license and, taken away from the from the pub club bar. And, yeah, and and you know, I think I think it's I think those two characters are kind of dreamers, and I think Billy's dad is meant to be kind of sad. He's like, he's a dreamer. He he's you know he's traveling to all these kind of places to kind of sell his inventions, but ultimately he's stuck in a small town with terrible ideas, and he's not going to go anywhere either, you know, literally or figuratively. <laughs> and, and there's all those machines. The mum, like you say, she is the one positive adult character, and the look she gives all the uh, the machines, so the orange juicer and the thing for cracking the eggs, yeah. and there's the, the telephone. She's... Yeah, she says, Dad's machines, they work so well for the first few times. <laughs> That's her only flaw, is that by now she should have said to him, look, either you get better than this or this needs to stop or I'm gone. Like, this, isn't the, this is not a way I can continue to live where I can't just have a normal existence with normal things that actually exist. Yeah, but it's without, you know, without being too serious. It's about the absence of things as well, isn't it? You know, it's a Phoebe Cater story about their father. You know, it's about the absence and the effect absence has on this. Uh, and I'll talk more about it later, being about the absence of money in the town, about the absence of fathers and role models. It's, it's quite dark, and, and it does do that darkness all the way through, and it's quite a fixed streak of darkness. And the other film we're going to uh, comment on, the darkness in that seems to be a bit more kind of scattershot, whereas Gremlin, it runs through, Gremlins runs through it like a big fixed spine, really, the darkness. And you forget that, or I'd certainly forgot. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you want to kind of talk about kind of things metaphorically, like the Gremlins and Gizmo, Gizmo literally has darkness within him, evil within him, given the situation. If the situation is right, he will turn into a horrible monster, like in a very literal way. <laughs> But the, you say about the adult characters as well. The the old one, Mrs. Dee's Deagle, Deagle, Deagle yeah. one. It's this the the aunt from Wizard of Oz, isn't it? Oh yeah, she's the, the, the Wizard, yeah, she's Wizard of Oz. Yeah, <laughs> literally, yeah. I'll get you and your little dog too. Like she's yeah. she's only delivering the line away from being that exact woman. The way she yeah. walks and looks and everything about her, and and also almost the theme when she's walking is 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 very similar to the theme in the Wizard of Oz. The do 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 is yeah. is like you know it's it's very intentional that she is the Wicked Witch of the West. Well, I think Dante kind of nods at all the films that he loved growing up. Anyway, doesn't he? Like he yeah. he's, he's kind of become that person for for films and I when like I say my film choice Krampus, it, it it's clear in there that there's a few little nods to Dante in that. 
Yeah. Yeah, and like it's a wonderful life is playing on the thing. Yeah. The parallels between Gremlins and It's a Wonderful Life, I think, are quite quite easily spotted as you as you watch the film. But I seen this when I was seven. The scene in the conference as well. That's just full of Easter eggs, isn't it? You know, with (laughs) my favorite bit. Yeah, so you're gonna say Steven Spielberg 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 on the recumbent bike. (laughs) But um have you did you notice that um, Jerry Goldsmith is also in the photo booth dressed as Joe Dante? <laughs> I, I didn't realise. I knew Jerry yeah, Goldsmith yeah. was in that he's, scene. Yeah, he's, he's in the back. Everyone always goes, oh, look, that's Spielberg. But like Joe, um, Jerry Goldsmith is there dressed as Joe Dante in, like, in costume. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got the time machine from H.G. Wells' time yeah. machine and Robbie yeah. the Robot. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a very film literate film about... Yeah. Very filmic qualities, isn't it? Yeah. So, in terms of the characters in it, and I, I love Gremlins, but other than the the mum, and I've never really thought of it like that. I don't massively like any of the characters. I don't particularly like Billy. I don't know if that's. Do you not? Oh, I no. love Billy. <laughs> I, the only problem I've got with Billy is what's your problem kind, with Billy? <laughs> they, they haven't really fleshed him out. Yeah. I know originally that this film was massive and it was like two and a half hours, nearly three hours long. And they've obviously cut a lot of Billy. I think at some point, either Dante or Spielberg realised actually Gizmo is the star here that we mm. is going to make this big. And they never really developed Billy. Poor Zach Galligan. They never really developed Billy in the way that they could have. He's the, the lead character. I think, I, think he's, I think that's interesting because I, I always really liked him as a lead character because he's so soft and gentle compared to a lot of other like leads you see in a lot of other particularly horror films and things like he is a very like gentle person he's very softly spoken he's an artist he's just generally you know he's polite to everyone I I like how like calm and you know softly spoken he is I think he's a really nice character and and a very different character to see on screen I think that was my problem with it because now all of that is true (laughs) that's my problem that he's nice no all of that's true and then he He said please and thank you (laughs) then he commits genocide in the cinema (laughs) by blowing up uh, all those gremlins you know they're monsters clearly but uh it, it just does. It seems like quite a big shift. Well, I've got a problem as well. Of, I do think when they started filming or when they started casting, at least they didn't really know how old Billy was. Yeah. Because he, he kind of yeah. he's hanging around school, but he's working in a bank, and he's friends with a kid, but he's drinking pints with Phoebe Cates. You are never <laughs> quite know. I'm the, I'm, yeah. I'm never quite, yeah. I assumed he was like twenty two. But I think doesn't when, before he gets Gizmo, doesn't his father say I'm looking for a present for my teenage son? No, he says his son, I think. Does yeah. he? Oh, yeah. But it, it it's kind of it's a bit all over the place with his character as to how old he is. Like he kind of shows some and maybe that's what they went for. He shows some quite childish traits at some times. Yeah. But at the same time, he's working in a bank. I it was yeah. And I'm saying that I, I bloody love Gremlins, as you know. It's my it's my job to try and pick holes in in every argument that you come up with in every film, and I'm going to struggle with this one. I'll be honest. Well, well, I'm going to move on to my second one now, and uh, I, I am going a slight tangent here, and you'll have to forgive me, particularly with the chapter title, and then I will explain why it's called that. But it's essentially I'm going to talk about music and about sound design, 
but the chapter is called Vaguely Connected Anecdote About Rugby Players. So let me, let me take you back to uh, 1998 when I was finishing my teacher training and uh, Aberystwyth had a, uh, a wonderful nightclub called Peer Pressure. It was on a pier. It's, uh, it's great branding. Opens. Yeah, and uh, a, a friend of mine who will remain nameless because he had quite an important job now, but uh, he, particularly when drunk, would make the uh, the gizmo singing sound. I'm not going to replicate it. I can't do it. But... <laughs> Essentially, that. <laughs> he would do that when we were drunk. Anyway, we were in this place and we noticed in the corner there were a group of rugby players, including Welsh rugby legend Jonathan Davis. So myself and two friends, we've bowled over there because we're full of beer and excitement and we want to talk to him. And my, my one friend, Kevin, saying, oh, do your gremlin thing, do your gremlin thing. It's a loud nightclub. If you love oh, it. <laughs> yeah, he'll love this. He clearly can't hear this man making this weird gremlin sound. So Kev says, oh, well, you're going to have to do something different. To which he starts doing the main thing, but whilst dancing, so you've got these terrified-looking rugby players and this massive block of going, la, 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 in the middle of this nightclub. So whenever I see gremlins now, I just think of the look of terror on Jonathan Davis's face when my mate was doing that. But anyway. I think that might be the Welshest story you've ever told on this podcast. The, the music is amazing. I think what the great thing about that, and that does lead me into the point I was making really, in amongst my massive anecdote, but is the anarchic sense. It's like a Looney Tunes, like Chuck Jones cartoons, come to life at times, and that's what the music is there to do, and that main gremlins theme. Is, is very much that, you know, you can do it drunkenly in a nightclub, you can do it sweetly, you know, you can do it hundreds of ways. It's just got that really kind of simple melody. But the whole thing, like Jerry Goldsmith is, his music is superb. There's really filmic bits, really kind of classical cinema f- uh, soundtrack beats that he's hitting, but as long as I just really anarchic stuff. There's, when you first see the town, when you first see Kingston Falls, the, the music is, is, well, it's like every Christmas film ever, but better. <laughs> it's like the music from every Christmas film we've ever seen, just done superbly, it was Jerry Goldsmith, but you know, it's absolutely superb. And you think, oh, this is something slightly different. And the music does that. When the film shifts tone, which it does a few times, the music does it for you. The music takes you with you. And I think that's superb. But then it's the way that incidental and diegetic music is used as well. So there's the, when the mum's in the house and do you see where I see starts playing on the record player. And that is genuinely terrifying. That just mm-hmm. really ramps up the tension. And all the way through, that's what it's doing. The music is being used to pick bits up and ramp up the tension. And even in the, the scene when they're all in the cinema, all the gremlins are in the cinema, and, and they're all singing Hi Ho, which could be quite cute. It's not cute at all. It's unsettling because the sound design is superb. That, mm. The sound design, uh, Frank Welker, uh, Michael, oh God, I can never remember his name, the guy from uh, Police Academy, Michael Winslow, 
no Michael Winslow, he's out of Crow. Uh, but the, the guy uh, out of Police Academy who does all the sounds, yeah. and Frank Welker, and the, the evil Gremlins voices are absolutely superb. There's so much being said without anything being said. And a lot, all, all the Gremlins and Gizmos lines were basically ad-libbed. Like a lot of their stuff they say isn't in the script because it was quite hard. Well, because they're puppets, so it's really hard to be like, and yes. the mouse going to move like this. So they just sort of like just did it as they were going. I think that's, yeah, again. And, 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 you've got, and you've got a very talented voice cast you know and, and puppeteers you know working very succinctly together um the voice cast is a real strength though isn't it you know it's uh, yeah in the kind of gizmo's voice uh, that's howie mandel isn't it off uh, yeah america's got talent and you know the frank welker the scooby doing everything it's just fantastic voices and uh stripe particularly he's yeah. just utterly malevolent and every, you know, kind of, it's hard to believe a little bit of rubber, and a bloke doing his voice can seem so malevolent. He's he's mm. quite a, a genuinely frightening character, and, yeah, and quite murderous as well. You know, kind of, yeah, that's the hidden. Uh, but there's other bits of sound design as well. That the when the mum's fighting them and she's stabbing them with the knife, it's a sound that's like scream. It's a cutting. It's just sound proper horror. Knife mm. sounds throughout it. That that whole scene with the mum and she's like absolutely kicking their asses, blenders, microwaves, Microwave. stabbing. <laughs> so it's such a good scene. Mm. I'm, I'm going to talk a bit more about that later, but yeah, that that scene is fantastic. But the sound design in that is particularly good. The the squelch when he explodes in the microwave, the blender sound, all of it is a bit full on. Well, it's, it's one of those I've said before on you that I, I think the line between like comedy and horror is very thin. As well, I think it was it Goshmar said it's just the perspective you look at it. Like someone else being hit by a hammer is quite funny. You getting hit by a hammer is horrific. Like <laughs> you know, out of context, those sounds are hilarious. The splats, the twangs, the, but because of that darkness, as you said, that runs throughout it all. That's what makes it quite horrifying. Then, like yeah. they and. I don't think we've had an episode yet where we haven't mentioned Scooby Doo and you've done it already, but that, that's kind of where like those noises in Scooby Doo makes for a very different atmosphere. But when you drop it in this film, it's just genuinely unnerving at times. Yeah, and, and I think as Alice said, music's really important because music is a form of communication for Gizmo. You get the sense of Gizmo is sweet and Gizmo is pure through this music, through his song, because. You know, you can't really plan a lot with uh, puppets, can you? Like you said, and they've, it's very difficult for them to be expressive. And I think the use of music, again, it's harking back. Though it, it there's bits of it that sounds a bit like uh, "It's a Wonderful Life." There's bits of it that sound like earlier films, and it's all quite deliberate. You've got a bunch of very film literate people making a very film literate film for film literate audiences. So all the musical cues, like you said, Alice, about the, the uh, Wizard of Oz and the Wonderful Life musical cues, and they, are they quite deliberately? And they're there for you to pick up throughout it. I also, uh, the point, I think it's about an hour into the film, when for the first time the Gremlins theme properly kicks in. And that is just, 
superb you could get a sense of the growing anarchy and the growing terror that's come and then that kicks in and it's just chaos on screen it's chaos in the town and it's such a cleverly written theme because it's so not Hollywood at that time that is not something that a Hollywood composer is going to be knocking out in the mid 80s it's not lush it's not filmic like Goldsmith is so capable of it's just this weird <laughs> punky anarchic thing going on and, and I think that's my the real strength of it and that's the thing that always sticks in my head long long after I forgot bits of the film I always remember that so I don't know if either of you had any views on the, the music or the sound um, I mean you've pretty much covered it all I, I, I love it um, the, the themes and Gizmo song and you know just it's all just it's lovely it's just really enjoyable to to watch and listen well, to. You said that the, the theme's almost like not of the time, really, that this came out the same day as Ghostbusters. Like, those two themes could not be further apart in terms of what they are. Like, Ghostbusters is that big, bombastic 80s style. Over it does the sound very 80s, doesn't it? The... Yeah, I mean, it's still brilliant. Don't get me wrong, I love it a bit. It's a great song. and Like, it's the one song, if it's going to kick off at a kid's party, I'm still going to be smiling and happy. Like, that brings a lot back. Have you heard the David Essex cover of Ghostbusters? I have not. (laughs) (laughs) Do I want to hear the David Essex cover of Ghostbusters? Probably not, but, you know, I I have, so I feel others should uh, suffer with me. (laughs) That's the most bizarre thing since I heard... um, What's his name? William Shatner singing Common People. Like, that's right up there. Are you aware of crab mentality? Crab mentality? No. If if a crab is in a bucket with other crabs and it's almost about to escape, the other crabs will um, grab it and bring it back down. That's what you usually gavelings, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You, you, are, you are a crab. <laughs> Well, I did move sideways up to here as well earlier, so yeah. <laughs> On you every week, giving it all of that. <laughs> Again, that, what I say about making visual jokes on audio podcast. Yeah, well, I, th- I think people will know what you are. <laughs> I, I, I didn't realise until a couple of years ago as well, I've always had a thing for uh, Christmas Baby Please Come Home. It's always been one of my favourite Christmas songs, and I it was only when I sat my son down to watch Gremlins did I realise it's the song that pretty much kicks off the film proper? It is, yeah. And I, that had completely dropped. I, it was one of those things that every time I come on, I think, oh, I love this song. And I could never think sort of why or where it came mm-hmm. from or where. Yeah, because it's at the start of Gremlins. And um, I was, as Cool Kid said about five years ago, I was today years old when I found out who Oit Axton was, who plays the father, who was apparently a massive country and folk singer wrote songs for Elvis, among others, which is why I, I thought the, at the start when we're in Chinatown, the voiceover feels a little bit out of place to me. And the reason was that opening scene was about 40 minutes long. And so they went, yeah, we can't have this. This is far too long. And so they went, <laughs> well, Oit's got a great voice because he's a singer. Let's just have him do a voiceover instead with his deep bassy voice that he's got. <laughs> and that's why he just explains what's going on instead. Which is, I think that's an interesting point, though, Steph, isn't it? Because I love this film, but there are bits when you think, I'm not quite sure what's happened here, but that makes sense if it was a much longer film. 
Yeah, I say apparently it was about two and a half to three hours long originally, and a lot of it was spent in Chinatown at the start, which kind of feels a bit tacked on now. Like that Chinatown bit feels very different to the rest of the film. I think you said it as well, but it kind of feels a bit sort of monkey's paw, like because they go in there and they're given all the rules and told, and this is, well, this is what I want for myself. And he's already told, look, this is going to end badly for you. And it happens anyway. But yeah, it feels a little bit different. But that's why, because it doesn't quite get that time to meld between the two, because they, they cut a good 30 odd minutes out of it. And actually, if we had had that, we might have had more context for the dad and he might have been a more sympathetic character. Yeah. Because I do have sympathy for him, but he is a bit of a deadbeat dad. Yeah. He's kind of trying to sell his, his inventions and just pick his son up a Christmas present. But then considering they're struggling, willing to pay well over the odds for something he doesn't, it, at that point, is just a singing rat. Yeah. Like he doesn't yeah. know anything else about Gizmo. He's just seen a rat that can sing as him and he's, he's in there, he wants it. Well, the thing is that I've got a child slightly older than we've pitched Billy at. If I said, you know, here's a pet, he'd be looking, what the hell are you on about? I just want cash. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not even convinced it's a, it's that useful, or, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a present for a 20-odd-year-old. But, you know, what do I know? Well, he's already struggling to look after his dog while he's in work. Yes. Give him another pet. Yeah, he's getting threatened by the Wicked Witch of the West, and then yeah. you know, it gives him something even more complicated. So my next chapter, I'm calling Traditional Christmas Monster Effects, because I think what it does very well is use visual effects, use puppetry, use physical effects, and to get across both sides of the story, that it's a horror film. Mm. which it does superbly, but it's also a Christmas film. And that first shot of Kingston Falls with the snow and the Christmas music and, and it's a big kind of panoramic shot. It's just every time I just think, I want to go there. I, I, I mean, I you can go there. It's on the Warner Brothers lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As we learned, it's also Gilmore Girls. and it's um, Back to the Future. Yeah, Monster, uh, Squad. Monster Squad, all all the same set. Yeah, yeah, you can you can you can go there. <laughs> but I'd love to go there specifically at that point. Yeah. I want to be there <laughs> in the snow. I want the Christmas music. You know, I'm I'm used to British Christmases. We don't get much yeah. snow. It's a no. bit wet and windy, and not a lot else. It's not as glamorous. And and I think. That's one of its strengths, those, those practical effects and those shots. It looks beautiful. It looks Christmassy, but the snow is also used really effectively, a bit like Krampus does as well. The snow is a vehicle for these creatures, mm. yeah. which it does very well. It hides the horror, yeah. and that's a, a good strength for the snow in it as well. But the, the puppetry is just yeah. so phenomenal. I love Christmas movies and I love horror movies. So obviously I'm going to enjoy this. Um, I, and I also love practical effects. Yeah. Um, they're one of my favourite things. So do you know who did the practical effects uh, for Gremlins? I don't. Um, I never get his surname right, but it's um, Chris Wallace. Wallace, is that how you say it? The guy that won the Academy Award for The Fly. Oh, um, right. he, oh, he, also, right. he also did the scanner's head explosion. Oh, uh, yeah. So, so he's, uh, he's, he knows his stuff. And that makes complete sense. Because yeah. yeah. one of the things I've written about the transformation scene is like really kind of gooey and gnarly, like like yeah. the fly is, 
like the scanner scene. And that's that's one of the things that that's a real strength again of the film, isn't it? The fact that you've got this lovely, fluffy gizmo and he's, you know, cute. And then you have these transformation scenes, which mm. proper horror transformation, like the fly, that which, like you say, now you say that makes absolute sense to yeah. me. It's really kind of oh, just horrible well, and sticky. Uh, my favourite bit is at, at the very end where um, Stripe, um, you know, like dissolves. Oh and yeah, stuff. and it's it like it goes on for ages, and it's just like you just see him so like crumple into himself, but the special effects for it look so good, even like, even now. I don't know what I'm saying even now, because actually special effects, they're obviously young. But like, it looks so good. It's so disgusting and gross, and I love it. it it's proper organic effects, isn't it? It's mm. it, it, when his body's disintegrating, you think, oh my God, that is genuinely disintegrating. Yeah, it's- yeah, yeah, it looks amazing. And the cocoons as well, they just oh, they just look horrible and slimy and sick and very mm. aliens like as well, yeah. clearly. You know, that's uh, slimy, no. slimy is always better than dry. Um, when it comes to monsters, dry monsters are just not as gross and scary or anything as, as slimy monsters. They were gonna make they were gonna make the tremors and well, the graboids and tremors dry, but then when they did the test, they were like, now we've got to make them slimy. <laughs> And, and slimy special effects, slimy practical effects are great because it's you just can without being able to touch it, you can imagine what that's going to be yeah. like. Oh, and yeah, no one likes stepping on something squishy. It's gross. Yeah. It, it's it's just... the one thing, isn't it? It's that it's it's why we don't like slugs and snails and things. We know they can't hurt you, but it's that goo and ick and yeah, yeah it is the one thing I think universally. If, have you ever? Sh- uh, shaking someone's hand and it's like a bit damp. Yeah, just a bit clam, just a bit clammy. Yeah. <laughs> but my cat had a habit of bringing slugs in and leaving them on the oh. floor in the bedroom. And I would get out of the bed and put my foot directly on them. <laughs> Every yeah. wet day, I would step on a slug. It just became quite a painful experience for me. My but, slippers, Gav. <laughs> yeah, no, obviously that's what I need to do. I need. To Im- important, important question then: stepping on slugs or stepping on Lego? Or Lego. <laughs> uh, really, you'd prefer to step on Lego? Yeah, actually, I would prefer to step on Lego. The, the, pain, was... the pain is minimal, you know, it's there, but then you haven't got bits of slug stuck to your foot afterwards. I... Plus, imagine what a miserable life it would be being a slug. Everyone hates you, everyone says you're gross, and then eventually some, someone steps on you in the morning. <laughs> is like, it... bloody, bloody morning people. <laughs> and one of the great things, salt, kills you. <laughs> Yeah. I think stepping on Lego is that, that moment of physical pain. Stepping on a slug that gets into your head, that's a mental thing. That's that's yeah. gonna stick with you, that one. Yeah, well, anyway, I'm not gonna turn this into a podcast about my <laughs> this yeah. is welcome Ooh. to slugs or Lego. <laughs> <laughs> Out of interest, have you got have you review actually seen slugs? Yes, uh, and I've read the book. <laughs> yes. I I read the book first. There's there's a movie. I this, um. <laughs> I've literally just bought the second book, which is called The Breeding Ground, which I haven't started yet. But I, I love Sean Nutson. I mean, they, they, yeah. they're crap, but they're brilliant. That was my first real kind of in my head of kind of adult books, uh, Sean Hudson books. <laughs> I went reading them when I was about 13. And then, uh, yeah, oh, anyway, there's some dubious attitudes in his books. I, slugs of the film is, is 
quite decent, I think, at times. I don't it, think I've seen it for years. Yeah, uh, there's a few there's a few scenes in there where he puts one in his mouth when he's eating a salad or something, I think, and it kind of starts eating him from the inside. Anyway, we'll leave that there. <laughs> we'll, we'll do that on the slugs episode. <laughs> the other good thing about the effects as well is that I think they spent so much money on the puppets, they didn't have a lot of money to do other stuff. But yeah. it didn't really matter. Because yeah. I think, like, the transformation scene in the pool, that's just dry ice and lighting. Yeah. Or it's it's genuinely scary. It's a pulsing green light. When I was little, the only bit I really hated when I was little was when um, the dog is strung up by Christmas lights. And it used to really yeah. upset me. And it wasn't until I was an adult, I was like, that's a puppet. <laughs> but it looks so good. It looks like It looks like the real dog. Um, well, I genuinely thought it was, and yeah, then I not. read somewhere it wasn't. And yeah, then, it's then, not. Then I watched it again yesterday. I was like, "Oh yeah, I can see that." <laughs> when you when you know, you can see that is a puppet because it's it's spinning as well, and it has the going back to sound design. It has a really clever sound design of you know, so like it really sells it to you, and it's a very quick shot. But like it used to really upset me. There was like you know they've they've strung this dog up. Um, just to let you know, I think I probably saw Gremlins when I was about 11. So I wasn't like a teenager going, you know, I was young. I was naive. No, I, I think I was probably similar age when I saw it. Maybe, I, maybe a bit older. Yeah. I, I think I was probably about 90 seconds ago. I realised that the, they haven't just done <laughs> put the dock. <laughs> <laughs> I assumed it was just like some sort of harness or something to get him up. I never thought for one second, that's not a real dog. Now that you see it, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I wonder who has the dog puppet now, or whether he's still about. He put, it, maybe he went on to become the dog in Fraggle Rock. Very similar sort of shagginess about him. I, I wonder if he wound up in a divorce settlement like David Warner's head did from The Omen. <laughs> That's still one of my favourite things that went in the divorce settlement, that he lost the head. His wife oh. being custody was decapitated. What's he putting in there? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you say as well, Gav, that they spent so much money on puppets, but it didn't seem to have... It actually made a massive difference because this film was originally meant to be a full horror film. There was no comedy originally slated to be in it. Um, I think that the mother in the original script gets decapitated. and it, there's all, It's very gory, the original script. And they spent so much money on puppets, they realised that they didn't have the money to do what they wanted to do. So they decided to make it more family friendly. And there are a lot of off-screen deaths, like the teacher, you know, you just see him kind of get grabbed and then you see his, like, blooded body. Um, the um, Mrs. The Flutterman's. Well, the Flutterman's are meant to die, but then they come back in the sequel. Yeah. <laughs> They're meant to be ploughed, we have a snowplough, but they come back. Um and um, someone else dies off screen. Mrs. Deagle, you just see a shoot through the roof. Oh, yeah, yeah, there. you see she has shoot through the roof. Um, well, so, yeah, there's... Sorry, go on. No, it's just because they say, like, people do die in it, but it's you know, no one is ever explicitly, like, you know... Well, off screen, they wanted death. They wanted the old um, Father Falling Down the Chimney story cut as well. The studio mm. kind of forced them... And somehow Dante managed to get it kept in, which is also the reason I was worried about showing this to my son for the first time. 
Because I, I, I think that's a really pick up on the old Santa's no real thing. <laughs> you know, that's a really important bit, though. I think the, yeah. that you know that's the darkness at the heart of it, and that's what keeps it on the right side of horror territory for me. And when you know, just finishing off talking about the effect, the scene when you see them all running down the road and it's all stop motion. It does pull you away from a bit. The stop motion is a bit less effective than the the puppet work, but I just really liked it in a kind of kind of old fashioned kind of uh, wonky way. It was a bit like the Ray Harryhausen stuff. Yeah, mm. and you know, and again, you get that sense of anarchy. It's a it's a very anarchic film, and the stop motion adds to that. So uh, my final chapter, unless we've got anything else to talk about the effects. I was just saying that adds to the nostalgia now as well. Like when yeah. you're, you're at the ages that we're at, you know, the, the nostalgia builds a little bit more by having that sort of clunky thing every now and again. Mm. You're willing um, to overlook that and think that it, it just adds to the to the warmth and the artness of it. It's a, it's a great film. I don't like CGI massively. You know, kind of all the films I really like, all the horror films I like are full of practical effects. I, yeah, CGI's got to be done very, very well for it to work. No, I, I think it's very easy to look once it looks a tiny bit off, it's completely off and it, it's yeah. pointless. Yeah. It loses its weight, doesn't it? It has a weightlessness. Yeah. And the thing about horror, horror is visceral and has a weight and a heft to it. And CGI takes that heft away. Yeah. I was reading somewhere about someone talking about a remake of society. The whole point of society are the practical effects. There's a remake of society. No, no, there was talk about it. Oh. I think it's never got that say, far. I was going to say because <laughs> Screaming Mad George's. Practical effects in that are amazing. Well, it's the practical effects that make that yeah. film, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, Screaming Mad George also likes likes them oozy, likes them wet <laughs> and slimy. Um, he he works with Brian Usner quite a lot. Um, he did Society. Yeah, I love Society. I, I, the first time I saw that, I was genuinely thinking, "What the heck have I just watched?" Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's bonkers. <laughs> I, I'm very disappointed we don't name the episodes of this because Screaming Mad George Likes the Moosey is the perfect <laughs> name for a podcast episode. Yeah. I'm, I'm devastated. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to go into uh, my final chapter then, which is called, It's About Reagan, yeah? Because this is, <laughs> this is a film full of social political comment. And... Kingston Falls is a town split down the middle. It's a town of haves and have-nots. It's a town of poverty and a town of uh, and of wealth. And wealth is not helpful. Wealth doesn't support the poor. Wealth is about creating more wealth. It's Reaganomics in action, and there's very little pity for poverty. Yeah, and you know, Mrs. Deagle is a pantomime mm. villain. There's absolutely no doubt in that Mrs. Deagle is a pantomime villain, but the scene when the woman's trying to explain, look, I've got another job, my husband's got a different job, can you just give us two weeks? Nope, no, and it's, yeah. and, it, and it's kind of replaying what's happening in America at the time, and it kind of, Reaganomics made lots of people very, very rich, but it made lots of people very, very poor. And that kind of runs through the entire thing. There's about poverty, about, wanting to be richer but wanting to make more money but not for personal reasons just because you're trying to keep your head above the the breadline really and it's just all the way through it there's a really kind of adult feel to it as well 
you know, kind of the talk about depression at Christmas, where just before Phoebe Cates explains all the stuff of her her father and the stuff of her father, which is really, really kind of grim. And that that bit always a bit kind of heart in mouth, uh, heart in the mouth kind of thing, because it's like, oh god, every time I think about that. I think about what it must have been like for her as a child to mm. discover that. It's just a, it's a truly horrific mental image that you're provided with it. You know, and the thing as well, there's lots of hidden things in this film about this film being much darker than it actually is. You know, Mogwai, for instance, a Cantonese word for devil, or you know, can't... so right from the start, if if you knew any Cantonese, and mm. clearly I don't, you you would know. This is slightly darker. And as Alice said, the bit with the mother, that's that's horror. That's 10 minutes of horror film action. The, yeah. the knives, the blender, the microwave, and it's gory and oozy. And when she blends him and the green blood just squirts up the wall. That's what's really terrifying when she's like, she's had that like massive fight scene and then she's like, she can there's still them in the house and she's kind of walking through and then it, attacks her from the tree and like the shots of like it kind of clawing at her and you seeing her getting really badly like mauled like you know she gets lots of kind of cuts and things um and and luckily billy comes in just in time that tree sequence is genuinely quite scary you know the two eyes and two eyes looking out from the tree as well (laughs) as she's looking around and again, it's done quite cheaply, isn't it? You know, kind of yes. puppet in a way, but and there's lots of very quick pans and quick cuts, but but it's really effective as a result of that. And I think there's a couple of times as well of, of genuine horror in amongst you know myself and Steph often talk about the strength of horror. As horror always has a place for social commentary, mm. and this does this does have a place for social commentary, and it makes it quite clear that the villains of the piece are. Mrs. Deagle yeah. and Judge Reinhold's character and, you know. Oh, and, that's his name. I was trying to think. That's the guy that plays Rosewood in Beverly Hills Cop, right? That's yeah. right, yes. Yes, the I same, was, the I was <laughs> So what I was going to say, I was thinking when you were saying it was obviously meant to be a lot longer, like he just disappears after he asks her out and she says yeah. no. We never see him again. So I suspect in a longer yeah, I, film he dies or, you know, something I, happens to him. That always just chilling in his very nice apartment that Phoebe Cates doesn't want to go see. It is um, apparently a that deleted scene. There's a deleted scene you can find whereby he's driven a little bit crazy by the gremlins existing, oh. and he locks himself in the bank vault. Oh, so, really? Yeah, that's how that's how he meets his end. I've got. I'll go through at the end as well a few more scenes mm. that I just found out of the film. But yeah, apparently, that's really interesting. Yeah, and and that one actually exists and is is findable. So. You know, there was a bit with Mr. Futterman as well. I thought it was going to be a kind of Rod Hull sequence where he was going to fall off the thing, but instead they just <laughs> drive at him with the, uh, the snow plough. But the one scene as well, that's the most adult, the most weird, the most bizarre, and the kind of the bit that doesn't seem to fit anywhere else in my head is the scene when the gremlins are all in the bar. Yeah. And, and I think that's just an excuse to, to show off how clever they are. And so, like, why is there a jazz yeah. gremlin? Yeah. My my favourite gremlin out of all of those is the Flashdance gremlin. It's (laughs) so good. It's so good. And then it like spins around on the floor and like you can see that that the floor's got a cut out there and it's just moving. But I just love it. 
I'd um, completely forgot that till I watched it again. On, and I, why is there a Flash Dance reference in this? And then, of course, the the, uh, the Gremlin and the Flasher Mac. But yeah. they don't have any genitalia, so I'm unsure <laughs> what it is is demonstrated. But yeah. that now you could easily lose that scene. Yeah. But I think it would be quite sad to, because again, it's the anarchic stuff. And as mm. much as there is social commentary, as much as it's a film about absence and about lack of responsibility and the, the dangers of not taking responsibility for the things you're meant to take uh, care of, it's also a cartoon. It's a cartoon mm. made in real life. And I think if you remove the bar scene, you lose that kind of real sense of uh, the, the anarchic. And uh, and that's mm. what it's about, ultimately. It, it's, yeah. it's carrying really powerful messages, but in absolute chaos. Yeah. So they are my four chapters on Gremlins. I don't know if anyone else wants to add anything. Um, do you know where the kind of the concept for Gremlins came from? So Chris Columbus um, had a, a, a an apartment that had mice, yeah. and in the daytime he was like, "Ah, eh, they're kind of cute, they're fine." Then at nighttime he just like heard them like scratching on the walls, and just, they were terrifying. So it kind of came from like this idea that you know something that's kind of cute and fluffy, and in the daytime at at nighttime kind of could could become kind of monstrous. I think as well it's interesting stuff that you said about how it started off as like a proper horror film and then went into comedy mm. horror. It's a bit like the opposite journey of E.T., which started out with murderous aliens attacking a farm and then became a cute flying alien. I'm just thinking... Cute! 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 cute. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Cute. <laughs> warm and, and lovely, but cute is not how I would describe E.T. He's a weird-looking dude. <laughs> <laughs> they um they kind of marketed it in the same way as well, though, did you never really seen E.T. until you saw him, if you know what I mean. I know that sounds like the most common sense thing to ever say, but they kind of teased at E.T. and like, the posters yeah. were his finger and there's a silhouette and they say, and yeah. so until you actually that moment he pops up. And they did the same thing with Gizmo, like people didn't yeah. really know what they were getting when they were, yeah, it's him looking out of the Christmas boxes, you get a little hand, you get you never get to see Gizmo. Unless you bought a ticket and went to the film. Apparently, lots of people were very unhappy with that because they thought this was another ET and they were going to turn up and it was this cute little fluffy thing. And then it turns out there's, you know, big green things eating people. So he's got some grim stuff in it, though, as well. When, ET when they, is. When they're taking him away, I find I, I've only seen ET twice and both times in my 30s, but I found it really traumatizing. You've only seen ET twice. Oh, my word. Yeah, I, I love it. For somebody who studied film and for does a film podcast, that I have huge gaping holes in my oh film. My God. I am. Um, I'm. My little one is is almost four. He's three and a half, and I think I'm going to show him ET when he's five. But like in my mind, I'm just like, okay, it's almost time. It's almost time. I love it. <laughs> well, I was looking forward to when I first could show my son Raiders of the Lost Ark, and he hated it. And, oh no! And, and yeah, that's got me back. We saw Ghostbusters Afterlife in the and cinema last week and it's the first time he's genuinely been excited by cinema and mm. uh, I'm really happy now. I'm surprised you took him to another film. I would have made him look for another house. My son watched Indiana Jones and we had to buy him at the fake whip that he used to oh, walk yeah. around the house making the noises. <laughs> this is a very strange thing for a five-year-old to be doing. But he My seems son doesn't like Star Wars either, which I've still not 
quite got my head around, which isn't as bad for me as Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it still is mm. a problem. Um, you said about uh, the the bar scene, and does that need to exist? What I will say is if it doesn't exist, you've got no Gremlins 2. That's pretty much all Gremlins 2 is about. And it's the bar scene dragged out for two hours, yeah, which isn't a bad thing. I love Gremlins yeah. 2 as well. It gets a lot of hate. I love Gremlins 2. I love Gremlins 2. It's brilliant. How could you it's not? It's amazing. Yeah, it's got it's got Christopher Lee in it. Yeah, it's it's got some of the best cameos of it. I mean, Al Gorgon randomly pops up at one point in a in a cinema before he was problematic. <laughs> well, he, he was problematic before we knew he was problematic. Yes, that's, that's true. <laughs> before it was known that he was problematic. It's got it's got the twins from Terminator two in yeah. them. It's got so many great moments. And bizarre things going on. The only thing that sticks in my head is the scene when Angel of Death by Slayer is playing. <laughs> on this match and stuff. I mean, that's the only bit of uh, Gremlin so I can remember. Um, I, do you want a, a few of the uh, the death scenes that they cut, by the way? Oh, yes, please. Uh, so there was Billy's mother, after she fights the Gremlins and she still hears the noise, then there's a, a fight that's shown off scene. And when Billy walks back in the house... They throw her head down the stairs. Oh. Um, th- th- obviously, that was cut. There's a scene with well, the Well, it wasn't, it wasn't cut. That's the point. I <laughs> 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 got to keep it. <laughs> There's a scene where they eat the dog. No. <laughs> There's a scene where they attack a McDonald's and instead of eating burgers, eat the customers. And originally, Stripe wasn't a separate Mogwai. I'm sorry to say this, but Gizmo became Stripe. And that's why he leads the other Mogwais is because he's essentially their father. Yeah. And uh, Spielberg said, no, that's that's not happening. I can't market that. <laughs> I can't sell any cute little plush toys on the yeah. back of him turning into the evil one. So uh, they changed that. Um, I did say, like, you've got to turn logic off a little bit because obviously I know they take the piss out of it quite heavily in the second film, but the rules don't really work. Like, either the three rules are like, don't let them interact sunlight, don't feed them after midnight, never get them wet, which it's the same rules that Ben Shapiro applies to his wife. Um, <laughs> don't get them wet, falls down straight away because, as he said, everything's covered in snow. Yeah, so, like, if there's one thing we know about snow, it's as soon as you touch it, it gets quite wet and slushy. Everything's after midnight as well. Yeah, <laughs> if you feed them at seven in the morning, that's after midnight. Yeah, <laughs> this is a, a, at yeah. what point is it no longer considered after? Are we talking midday the next day? Is it sort of one minute at what point is... maybe maybe it's like midnight to one minute past midnight yeah like f- if you're just really unlucky to feed them in that one minute window <laughs> like 60 seconds just hold off for 60 seconds yeah. you can have whatever you want yeah i think they even joke about it in the, in the second one like what if you get something stuck in your teeth and it yeah, just <laughs> oh, what if you're in a plane and you cross over yeah. the time zones <laughs> i think there's a few uh I can't even remember the setup for the second one. I, I, I'm fairly sure I don't want to as well, but I remember the talking one as well. And I just, it loses some of the, the charm. It, it's all. Oh, I it's don't all know. Funny. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Um, yeah. So the, the, the setup for the second one is um, genetic, genetic testing. Christopher Lee uh, has lots of different components that they're trying to inject into mice and other animals to see if they can make them smarter or, or, or like adapt them in some way. So there's, um, there's one that's like a bat serum and a lady serum. <laughs> a lady serum. I, I remember the lady gremlin <laughs> from the second See, one. lady serum could also be a... <laughs> <laughs> lady serum, bat serum. There's, there's like um, sunscreen serum. So the bat 
one of them gets the bat serum and is a bat and then gets the sunlight serum so it can go outside and that's where um dick miller mr rutman kind of sees it and is like not again <laughs> it leaves the um the batman logo as it flies mm. through the wall doesn't it, so yeah. it flies out there or through the window and it leaves yeah. the batman logo it's, it's great there's the sophisticated one that i used to like with sings new york new york oh my god i love that scene at the end it's brilliant. It's well, such a good film. It's, it's, I'm going to have to reappraise it. I'll yeah, you, you need to watch weekend, it again. I, yeah. I mean, it's terrible, but it's brilliant. I think it starts no, off with them. No, it's just genuinely great. <laughs> I'm already saying it starts off with them bulldozing the old Chinese shop that he originally comes from and he runs away yeah. back to Billy. Yeah. Which yeah. makes me think the Chinese no, no, are no, um, so nice so, after all. So, no, um, uh, a construction worker or someone finds it and then they take it to the lab where wow. the twins and Christopher Lee work. It's, it's, and then Billy, fortunately, Billy works in the same building and hears the... Which so. is all based on Trump Tower. The, um, yeah. The building oh, I can, yeah, I can see that. It's overly modern, mad building in the middle of New York. I've been to Trump Tower. It's a hideous place. Everything was gold inside it. Did you have a, did you have a fart in there? Uh, I had a drink. I, I had a very expensive whiskey sour and stole a golf ball. <laughs> well, took a golf ball. They was they were there to be taken. Ah, uh, you, you you lost a few cool points then when you explained that. <laughs> yeah. You sounded quite cool when you stole a golf ball. When you took a free golf ball, you didn't sound as cool. Then. Yeah, no, it's less. Uh, it's, uh... <laughs> um, the one thing that I don't think you mentioned or didn't mention a lot is uh, Phoebe Cates. Like I, I was only little when I think, but I fell in love with Phoebe Cates instantly watching Gremlins and Gremlins 2 and uh, yeah and Drop Dead Fred but yeah I, I love Phoebe Cates she's she is great so, in it as well she's she so is... subtle in places as well this sort of love interest character isn't done over the top but she does the little things like there's little glances at Billy and she picks the the bit of cotton off his coat as they talk as she's talking to Judge whatever his yeah, name they're, is right they're now. believable they're, they're believable couple aren't they yeah Often, like, you know, in the film we're about to discuss, none of the couples are believable, but they're, they're a believable couple. And she's also in, well, yeah, I completely forgot to mention the scenes. They're stuck in my head, the scene in the cinema, before they blow them all up, when they see uh, her and Billy escaping, and then it cuts to them behind the screen, and you see all the gremlins on the screen. And yeah. that is properly... Ooh, I'm not sure about that, but, you know, that's one of the few moments of genuine uh, horror again, then. You know, but she is excellent in it. She's, you know, can really, really believable character, more so yeah. than Billy. Yeah, and, and a bit more 3D than, than Billy was as well. Mm. So that was just my, I had Phoebe Cates moment. I had to throw that in, sorry. I'd... So you, your way of arguing that this film isn't as good is by pointing out something else really good about it. I'll, I'll come to that. I'll come to that later <laughs> on. I'll come to that. I, I, my last point on Gremlins as well, and I feel like... Uh, Dr. Fox, the uh, DJ doing this, but somebody who listens to the, the pod, uh, Matt Fowl, it was his birthday by the time this will go out, I think. Gremlins is his favourite to the point of for a birthday present. His wife has actually uh, hired a cinema for him to watch Gremlins in because he considers it perfect uh, Christmas and birthday film. So I kind of I would be remiss not to mention Matt because uh, I his know birthday Christmas. It's 19th of December. Oh, Sunday, because it's the day after mine. 
No, no one's renting me a cinema to watch Gremlins. In. I hope that's not a surprise, by the way, because this is going up to the nineteenth. I think. I, I don't think that. You know, well, I'll, I'll see what I can do. I've made for still girls cinema. I'll publish on the twentieth, just to be sure. We'll be fine. <laughs> anyway, but that was my Doctor Fox moment. <laughs> uh, so we'll move on to uh, to my film then. So quick synopsis of my film. I will keep it quick. Uh, Dysfunctional family clashes over Christmas. A young boy is disillusioned, turns his back on the whole thing, unleashing an evil anti-Santa on non-believers. So it's Michael Doherty's Krampus. It's the most wonderful time of the year. With the kids jingle bells. Merry Christmas! Looks like Martha Stewart threw up in here. This is delicious, honey. A little dry. Well, mine's delicious. Mine's dry. Do you want to trade? It's the It's Christmas. It's Christmas. It's Christmas. With those holiday greetings and How are we going to survive Christmas with 12 people stuck in a house with no heat and no electricity? Or food. There's plenty of leftovers, Howard. Beer it is. It's the weirdest thing. There's no cars, no people. How long can this keep up? We heard something on the roof. What the hell is this? St. Nicholas is not coming this year. Instead, a much darker ancient spirit. Those are hooves. Elk or a goat? What kind of goat walks on its hind legs? His name is Krampus. He and his helpers did not come to give, but to take. Hold on to each other. He is the shadow of Saint Nicholas. Christmas. So, Governor, it's the first time you've watched this as well. It was, yes. I thought it might have been. I know what you like with uh, comedy horrors. So, as well, you know, like I, I like to, I like to push your boundaries a little bit. If it's something I know you've done, like I like to give you something to uh, to try a little bit. So, my first chapter is called "As Campus Christmas." Because, uh, so we talked about what makes a Christmas film. And one of the biggest things is obviously it's got to be set at Christmas. But so many times you see Christmas films that are set at Christmas, but don't really have Christmas at the heart of it. I think the biggest thing for this, if you go in to get ready for Christmas, is this can't exist at any other time. Like and a lot of films can be a movable feast and you've just happened to set it at Christmas because it kind of fits. Like Die Hard. 
not like Die Hard. <laughs> Die Hard is the one true Christmas film. <laughs> but this can only work at Christmas. Like, there's no other point. Every character, or at least every villain that exists within this film, every monster, every creature, has all got its links to Christmas and can't really exist at any other time. So, I get that sometimes it's a little bit nonsensical, right? I said that about Gremlins. I get that completely with this film. There's massive plot holes, but it's silly and it's camp and it's excellent. And for me, it kind of feels like uh, National Lampoon's Krampus Vacation. Like it's got that same sort of feel of the over-the-top family members putting this all brought together for Christmas, even though none of them particularly want to be there and don't particularly want the other people to be there. It's very much got that same vibe as the National Lampoon's films have got. Um, We've also got the the much darker edge then that runs through it quite a lot. I don't know if you've seen Trick or Treat, but that was... But yeah. that was Michael Dockley's film that came before this one with the little guy with a sack on his head, Sam. Um, so that was obviously Michael Dockley's film. And it's got a very similar sort of, it's got that happy campness to it. But through it all is this very dark soul that runs through everything. Right to the point of in this film, we don't even get the happy ending that you think you're going to get. I mean, through it all, you always suspect there's going to be a nice happy ending. Everything's going to come out in the wash. Everything's because this is the way these films go and it's Christmas. So it's the one time of the year where you're allowed to wish on a miracle and everything works out. And Max picks up the bell and he throws at his feet and he tells him that to take him instead. And you think that's his redemption. And no, because at the end, they're all trapped in the snow globe. It's absolutely dark from no. beginning to end. At the end... Yes, I'm probably reading this entirely wrongly, so please shoot me down if that's the case. But the end can be read in one of two ways, can't it? I think it can be read that they are trapped in the snow globe and they are at the whim of the Krampus forever. Or a slightly less depressing take on it, that Max's redemptive moment has freed them Right, he's got them in the snow globe because he's keeping an eye on what's happening. Um, it's not like you to be the upbeat, optimistic one in this. <laughs> I don't know at what point we flipped and you became Mr. Cheery on this this episode, but it's um, getting closer to Christmas. That's Soon what it is. Christmas. <laughs> one day left of work. <laughs> Speak um, for yourself. I'm working Christmas Day. Oh, oh God. And, bo- and Boxing Day. Oh. God bless you. Um, For me, no, because from the moment that he comes back downstairs that Christmas morning, everything is off. Mm. The colour is off and it's slightly washed out and weird and feels quite dreamlike and very strange. And the way that they're all acting around each other is not the way that they were all acting before. And let's remember his last wish wasn't that everything would be okay as he put in his letter to Santa but rather his last wish was to Krampus, which was to just take him instead. I think, well, for me, I'm going to say he doesn't accept his wish. He's going to take them all and he's going to put them with all the others that he's taken. I mean, the... Sorry, go on. 
No, I was going to say, it, it just continues the darkness that runs through it all because it's got some of the darkest things. Like It's rare that you see kids snatched away like that and never come back. Which, like, usually if a kid goes missing, someone goes out, Beth goes missing, and it's one of the plot holes, no one really seems that bothered. They kind of go out to find her when they fail the first time. They all just lock the doors. Like, your daughter's out there. <laughs> like, do you think maybe you want to have another go first and then we'll see? I mean, they, 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 do, they do mention it a couple of times. But like, yeah, but, but very... They don't seem so that they, bothered. Stuff no. always stops them somehow. Something no. else always comes up. Yeah, and the, but they their big plan is let's all get the fuck out of here and we'll see if we can bring out back for it. Like, let's get everybody safe and then we'll see if someone can come back with a snowplow and can find it. Like, it's going, did you just look a little bit more. I know we got hurt by something a bit weird out there. Yeah. We've like also I've... got Omi's story, which is basically that uh, she grew up in poverty in Germany and her whole family got murdered right in front of her eyes by Krampus. Which is incredibly dark. It's one of my favorite scenes where they, they go into the, the animation to tell yeah. the backstory while she, she explains everything. I thought that That's was That's really good. Uh, the kind of the stop motion stuff. It's quite interesting. Both these films have quite a lot in common with, with John Irving, the American novelist, who I'm a massive fan of. A lot of his books are about children kind of suffering the sins of the parents. And you know, they're both these films, both Krampus and Gremlins, do that really, really kind of effectively. Krampus, Krampus particularly well, I think. You know, you get even more of that sense in in Krampus. And the, the campness of it, I think it it it's tonally very uneven. Uh, mm. And I don't mean that as a criticism, I think that's actually part of the strength of the film. But there's bits of it that are quite high camp, aren't they? And Dorothy for yeah. large chunks yeah. of it is 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 another pantomime monster. And but then the, the clown uh the clown snake yeah. monster thing. The jack in the box thing, yeah. Yeah, there's no countless in that. That's just no. terror. Yeah, it is and I will move on to all the, the creatures in my next chapter as well. The the um the ant I think is absolutely superb that some of the lines that she just throws out. When they're trying to get, let's go make Peppa Bit schnapps and um, oh yeah, I think she, I, I've not been this over since the Pope died. Is a great line. I've, I've written down a lot of her like <laughs> she, She's absolutely at the point when she shoots the uh, the teddy in the face and uh, she's uh, she's absolutely fantastic throughout it. Uh, uh, and uh, and Dorothy and like this the the sneering looks at uh, Tony Collette's decorations mm-hmm. and everything. But you said as well about the, the sort of unbalance, and I think for me that's kind of what kept me on my toes mm. because you're never quite 100% sure where it's going to go. Like, it's not full comedy, so you think it's going to be funny, and it's dark, but not completely dark, but you don't think something funny is going to happen. And so you never really know what's going to happen next. It's interesting that, you know, that he made um, Trick or Treat because that's an anthology and there's much more scope to commit to specific aesthetics. So, like, you know, someone played more seriously than others. Um, Whereas this, obviously, it's a feature, so generally you would be more tonally even. Um, But, yeah. 
Um, what I was going to say is I've seen this movie twice. The first time I watched it, I watched it in the cinema, but me and my husband had done a Muppets Christmas Carol drink along beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> so we were drinking like Baileys and um, Port and all the various Christmas drinks every time like Gonzo mentioned he was Dickens or someone said, you know, God bless us, everyone. So we went and we were quite drunk. And I watched the whole thing, but my husband watched the opening scene, fell asleep and then woke up for the end. Um, and then I was like, oh, what did you think? And he was like, that was rubbish. I was like, you were, you were asleep. Um, <laughs> so has he watched it with you since? No, I watched it last night and um, he had a meeting. So um, I watched it again and it was interesting watching it again. I think one of the things that's interesting for me, and I, I find this with a lot of American films, uh, opposed to like British films or other kind of, foreign language films is Americans don't ever really care about you liking anyone. Genuinely very few likable characters in the film is there. Yeah. You know, it's, and, but that's kind and, of the point with Max. So that's why Max doesn't want to be there. But like I do find like a lot of American films will just have like absolutely terrible people in them. But not like acknowledge not always acknowledge like these are all terrible people. Like People in this film are quite clearly meant to be terrible. Yeah. Yes. But they just don't, they don't seem to care that there's no one likable. Like, there's no one really likable. The, the, the old lady is maybe likable. I, well, think no, I, I think she's the actual worst one of all of them. Only. Oh, do you? Yeah. <laughs> because she's nice, is it, Gav? <laughs> no, it's not because she's nice. She isn't nice. She knows about this demonic stuff. She should have been kind of preparing them for it. But it's an inevitable point in your child's life when they kind of they fall out of <laughs> love with Christmas, with the kind of romance of Christmas. Yeah, you know, and kind of if I knew where uh, you know can the minute uh, my son uh stops believing in Santa that it was gonna unleash demonic forces, I'd have probably been a bit more careful about making the Santa thing keep going. My son's 12, and I think he started to delete, uh, unleash demonic forces already. So uh, it comes out every now and again about once a fortnight. Um, yeah, I, I think the point I say is kind of that they're unlikable. You kind of feel for Max, you empathize with him mm-hmm. because they're so unlikable. And that's why I disagree with you, Gav. I think that's why Omi is the, the likable character in it because she's kind of on Max's side. Because not only does she understand what he's done, because she did the same herself, but they've got that connection. I do, I, I do like obviously the the major plot point is one that they shoot down themselves straight away of her not speaking any English until about an hour in, and then breaking into a, a fairly perfectly structured story that she tells completely in English. And uh, then, uh, do they have a reference that she can't speak English? I thought she just hated all of them. Well, I I think obviously even the mother she said what what did she say because she only ever speaks German up to that point and then the, the aunt goes I knew it so obviously <laughs> she's never spoken English in front of her before that's one of so my maybe you're right episodes. I knew it <laughs> but I uh, uh, Tony Collette's character is like a bullish, isn't she mm, I didn't like her <laughs> well. I'll and I on. clearly am no judge of human beings. So that that is what <laughs> I, will come out of this, uh, I think, this episode. I think I think for me, like she's putting up such a like veneer and pretense that she's almost impenetrable, even to her children. And there's a moment where her and Adam Scott kind of are looking out the window talking about Beth and worrying about her and stuff. And you know, the real her comes out a little bit, but 
you know, she she just seems. I don't know. I would just hate to spend Christmas with her. <laughs> I, I I think and that's a, and and eternity. <laughs> yeah, especially in a snow globe where you can't right, even get yeah. out. Um, I I think that's kind of as you said, it's that kind of veneer. Like they want to live that perfect almost. Sorry for you, but like American Christmas, that American lifestyle of everything's perfect, and they're in this nice uh, place to live. And then obviously that's why when these people rock up with the complete opposite of that, and you know they yeah. they mock the food that she's making because she can't just make normal food; she's got to yeah. make this over the top. Yeah, and but but it's it's you know she hasn't considered them like she's saying, "Oh, I'm just trying to make nice food," but there's varying degrees in that. Like yeah. you know. It's, she's she's trying to show off and then there's another bit where her sister's like oh you've got all of mum's decorations and like clearly you know something's happened to the mum but she's just like taking it taking it all you know she just seems like a very selfish person to me yeah I agree and I I think it's done quite subtly again Mm. it's not really in your face it's done quite subtly of whether you want to call it a selfishness or whatever that may be to her, but there's that sort of not as welcoming certainly as she could be, and she wants things done how she's seen as the proper way to do things rather than how people actually with, want to do them. I think my issue with the characters is I just don't get them as families, if that makes sense. Mm. You know, Which they, is, they, they seem so disparate. It, it's almost like I don't understand how they could be related. Yeah, I get it, but I think obviously she's found her husband that because it's the sisters, aren't it, that say, so she's gone off with yeah. her husband, yeah. who's clearly the one who's the bit of the hunting net, and that's the life that he lives, and that's the life that she's now become accustomed to and taken, and then she's found this, this she's with this businessman who, I mean, she completely overreacts as well to him working at Christmas, because he takes one phone call, which I, I know, that, like, I, I wouldn't be very happy if my partner was working sort of Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, but it was one phone call. <laughs> I know we've got family around and we're meant to be doing this big thing, but one phone call, just leave him take the one phone call. It's not that bad. Um, yeah. yeah. Which takes me on to my my second chapter, which I is called This Isn't a School Nativity, because for what is quite a camp, uh, over-the-top, really mad horror film, the performances in it, I think, are absolutely amazing. I think Adam Scott is absolutely excellent in it. Like, this is a film that's meant to just be mindless fun. Adam Scott, I think, absolutely. Adam Scott reminds me of Tom Cruise, if Tom Cruise didn't what didn't look immediately punchable. Like, there's something about Tom Cruise that makes him immediately dislikable now. And I think Adam Scott is kind of that every man that Tom he, he is he was he he very much is an every man and and you know I, to be honest I, I don't hate his character but he he seems a bit adrift yeah um but you know he at least goes to talk to his son and you know make amends and he seems the most affected by the letter and you know that his son's written and and, and I think the, he, he's the one that makes the biggest like they they all grow as people and show the side to them that, that we want to be there. He's probably the one that grows the most because he's the one who's, he takes the piss out of him for not really being what, what he sees as like a real man. What mm. the, and he's the one who actually, when the shit hits the fan, he's the one who really steps up, 
and tries to help everybody out. He's the one who comes up with the plans. He's the one who goes out and he does things. And he's the one who really takes control of an horrific situation. He's the closest thing to heroic. He's not a hero, yeah. but he's the closest thing to heroic. And, I, and I Max think... is the only other heroic beacon. Well, they all have the little moments, don't they? But yeah. Consistently. I, I they've all got big character growth. And I think that comes from the performances you've got to put. I mean, one of them is, is Tony Collette. Tony Collette is absolutely superb. Like she is excellent, and it's yeah. Tony fucking Collette. Like Oscar nominated, BAFTA nominated, like Six Sense, About the Boy, Hereditary, Muriel's Wedding, Tony motherfucking Collette. And she's screaming at a possessed, a possessed murderous gingerbread man who's trying to drag her nephew out of a chimney. Like it's completely ridiculous. But she she performs in the exact same she, way. She, she always does sell it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it could have been another Oscar nominated film the way she did, like the way she like clambers back from that chimney, having just seen a CGI gingerbread man with a look of sheer terror in her face that could have been any other film that she was in the, it, the performance is, just, is far bigger than what this project is it's such a tony collect performance though isn't it you know it's that kind of understated and just slightly withdrawn and pulled back like she does in everything she's in yeah. until the moment when she really has to knock her up to operatic levels which yeah. she can do really really subtly but you can just see her building up through the gears hereditary very similar that you know she's quite she's controlled and controlled until she's not controlled at all yeah that range of that she's got it, she, you know, she's fantastic but everyone's good and the, the kid actors are good as well and that's something i very rarely say say but all the children are good in it and you know david david keckner comes in and does the kind of the Trumpian thing, and that's really effective as well. It's it's a well-acted horror film. I would say it's probably one of the better in terms of acting performance of all the films we've discussed so far, really. It's only really the big, you know, The Exorcist, The Rosemary Baby, which have had better acting performances. Well, you said earlier about the kids sort of stuck living the, the lives of their parents. I mean, never more is it is it shown than the two daughters that he's got who are called Jordan and Stevie and address like stereotypical boys, like everything they do has got to be what's he's seen as boyish. And then I think Max's letter says, I wish that they, he didn't wish he had had sons, <laughs> which is like what really sets them off because it's pretty much like it's been drilled into them that this is how they should be. This is the way that this family lives their life. And the, the, the actors nail it, those kids actors, they did brilliant. Yeah. Don't you think, though, the film sometimes, there's a couple of opportunities of making much bigger social commentary and it kind of shies away. It's almost there for the, well, it's there because it's there. The, the start uh, with the slow motion scene in the supermarket, yeah. and which is like you turn into a massive bundle and it's all the anti-consumerism thing. And then about how gender roles are defined and you know, kind of the family dynamic. But it never quite goes deep into that. And I understand why, because it, it wouldn't add anything to the film, really. But it, it just, those bits seem a bit tacked on, really. You know, you could have had those characters not being like they were, unless you were going to make more of a, a point about it, about, you know, kind of gender roles and stuff. But I, th I think the opening is really strong, the, the, the kind of the slow motion um, kind of bit where everyone's kind of literally kind of tearing things apart punching each other you see loads of money like hundred dollar bills being handed over and people looking miserable um 
before we're introduced to the family. I think what it's saying, and it, I think it does come back to that point, is that that is not the meaning of Christmas. Mm -hmm. Like that's the ugly side of Christmas, but that's yeah. the part of Christmas that most people engage in. Yeah. So I think it says that, but I don't think it has any interest in saying more about no. that. It, it like, doesn't. It, it makes that. It makes that point at the beginning of the film and then never really returns to it other than that the, the, the point of Christmas is about kind of family and, and having differences but coming together and accepting people. Um, so it never really kind of returns to that initial point. Yeah, there's not a great deal of depth to it other than Christmas should be magical and not about presents or anything else. It should be about yeah. family. And that, that's as deep as it's going to get. I mean, you wanted a perfect Christmas film, Gav. I can't be having tangents. This is what it's all about. Uh, my third chapter I've called All the Creatures Were Staring. Um, I think the creatures in this are genuinely fun and quite original. Yeah. Even the ones that we've seen before, we've not seen particularly like this. Um, go on, Alice. I was going to say, I, I do like the creatures. So I like, I like all the creatures we have in the attic. Yep. I'm not super jealous. The elves, and I do not like the gingerbread men. Right. That's so, obviously, the the gingerbread men are the only CGI ones in there. Yeah. I do okay. like the gingerbread men. I'm very big on practical effects. I've, I've brought it up on almost every podcast to the point. I was like, can I can I bring it up again about this? And I am going to. But I did like the CGI. I think it kind of fits. I don't know if they could have worked in any other way. And they're my favorite. Things about this, the gingerbread. It's a bit goosebumps, have... isn't it? It's like the gummy bears and yeah. the goosebumps. Yeah. It's also like if you've seen Ghostbusters Afterlife, and if you haven't, then you might have seen on the trailers anyway. The little marshmallow men that are in it mm. are very similar as well. I just think this film, more than anything, as dark as it is, it's got a lot of fun in it. And those gingerbread men are a lot of fun. They add that element of just a bit mad and a bit fun. I don't know if they would have worked as stop motion but the biggest best thing about the gingerbread men is that it gives rosie the dog her chance to grow as a character and see <laughs> having run away scared earlier in the film this was her chance of growth and redemption and rosie eats the gingerbread man on fire i don't know if she didn't burn her mouth but she did and maybe it's like the flaming sambuca thing that when you shut your mouth it goes out but <laughs> i've got a bulldog rosie's abs i love rosie what my my favorite character in the whole thing, and you can't prove. To did me you see tomorrow. what? Did you see what her name was in the credits? No, oh, I can't remember now. But it really made me laugh. Oh yeah, have a quick Google on that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I love Rosie. I mean, I love a bulldog anyway, and it's my dream dog. I know I've got one, and I, I couldn't be happier in life. Ever since I was a kid, I used to watch British Bulldog Wrestling. I wanted a bulldog, and Rosie is absolutely amazing. But. Uh, the characters, uh, the Jack in the Box is yeah. as creepy as hell. The yeah. the the mouth, like it's not just a big gaping mouth; like it opens up from the chin, which is just like mwah, so yeah. Good. It it this the squelch underneath. You've got the sort of the blood and the muscle and everything that, that sort of oozes out. Swallows Jordan. Yeah. That is grim. <laughs> and like um like when you see those snakes swallowing an egg and then they yeah. just sort of expanding its mouth and swallowing it in one go. It, it it's very creepy. But even the first time you see it when she's underneath the truck hiding, yeah. and you've got the sound of it ticking over, and you think, I know what's gonna happen, it's gonna pop out, it's gonna pop. But it doesn't, it pops open and then it slowly creeps out. 
and it makes it more scary than if it had just probably like you're waiting for that jump scare and instead you get the creepy little crawling out of a box thing. I think Krampus itself is quite scary. I, I don't know how it took so long to make a good film about Krampus. Like it's quite a well-known folk tale from, from Germany. When he's there sort of jumping from from roof to roof when you've got those big cloven hooves mm. and the giant horns. And, you don't see uh, enough of him, though, for me. No, I don't think you do. And obviously, he's wearing the face of a terrified man is the thing as well. Yes. That's really creepy that we get to see him. Do, do, you know what, do you know what he reminded me of? I can't remember what it's called. It might even be called... And then there was a film, I think, called Monster in the Closet and the puppet, like just always had its mouth open. It kind of reminded me of that. Yeah, that'd be sorry. Do you know the film I'm talking about? Is it called Monster in the Closet? Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's sort of gaping. It is called Monster in the Closet from 1986. Yeah, it's just, his mouth is open for the whole movie. Like someone said something really shocking. It's just like, <laughs> um, but his mouth is open the whole time as well. Uh, do you want to know something really strange about Monster in the Closet? Is that it starred uh, Stacey Ferguson, who went on to become Fergie in the Black Eyed Peas. It's <laughs> 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 a random fact here. Yeah, we well, <laughs> I'm not sure where we go from there. I don't think the pod's getting any better. That's, that's the point where we should, uh, we should stop. <laughs> that's what it, the podcast as a whole, just everything. Yeah, yeah, all podcasts, probably. Not just um, but yeah, they, all of them, they, they, the snowmen in the garden are really weird and creepy as they keep yeah. building up. Yeah, very weird. Doctor Who, that. Yeah. Yeah, I just, but, but I like those, those uh, the snowmen. And the snowmen in the garden is really good because there's nothing more unnerving than a, like a, something like that that you haven't built just turn up. Like, yeah. You know, why would someone build a snowman in your garden facing... The house is, is just very creepy. It's, it's the Blair Witch thing, isn't it? When they come out mm. to the tent and they find those uh, those little, wooden kind yeah. of yeah, the, the bound wood, you know, it's those kind of things. This Which, is someone has made this, and I don't understand why. It well, it's, it's something that's so innocent as well. Like it's a snowman. It's not scary in the slightest. But like you said, because of that mysterious, but who's put it there? Which I think Max says, yeah, but who built it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what makes it absolutely terrifying. The bear with the big gnarly teeth in the in the attic, I think, is great as well. That bites her, bites her arm. Mm-hmm. That big teddy bear with a child's yeah. bear, and this teddy bear just dives at it. <laughs> so yeah, I think all the the creatures in it are, are absolutely superb. And like I said every one of them are so Christmassy. Other, well, maybe the Jack in the Box and the bear could exist at any other time. I, I think but, I'm with Alice, though. I'm not a fan of the elves. They mm. it, seem, it seems a bit. Oh yeah, yeah I don't know. I just I didn't like the look of them, and I didn't think there was anything kind of scary about them. No, no, uh, and they were just a bit annoying. They, remind, <laughs> they, they reminded me of there was an advert for an alco pop, kind of early two thousands. The beware Jedi of the Jedderman thing. The Jedderman is terrifying. That was one of my favorite adverts with this weird yeah. nose. It kind of looked like um. The uh, Sandman, if you've ever seen the short film The Sandman. Yeah. Oh, God, no, don't remind me about Oh, God. 
Beware <laughs> of the Jitterman media. Yeah, I would really yeah. love that. I mean, if they'd looked like that, that would have been great, but they... Yeah, they had that it. kind of Eastern European folk kind of thing, didn't they, about yeah. it? That, that was my thing. And it was all right, and they, they were fine. But the other monsters were scarier, I think. Do uh, You know the thing with the hook down there? Uh, yeah. Chimney? Well, that's based on Icelandic Christmas ideas that there's, uh, there's I think there's, uh, they're called the 12 boys or something. I can't remember all of it, but like kind of 12 Christmas elves, and they do different things. And one puts a hook down the chimney and pulls up smoked meats and stuff that people have in their uh, fireplace. So that's where the hook thing comes from. It's based on this kind of Icelandic tradition. That's but I didn't know that. That's great. I, I really... But I, say, I like the gingerbread men, so I think it all ties in as one for me when the gingerbread men are, are, are messing about with the hook and trying to get him and Tony Collette's screaming up a chimney... That's about as madcap as it gets, and that's that's me all over. But it's full of Easter. It's full of Eastern European and and Scandinavian yeah. and Central European kind of folk folkloric ideas all thrown together. You know the Krampus and the red the hook coming down the thing and the elves and you know it it. I like that bit, and I like the kind of European bit coming to America, and only kind of brings that too as well. I, I'd have liked that played on a bit more. I think. But. And a lot of it, I think, could do with either a bit more depth or a bit more backstory. Like, yeah. I think the elves would work a bit better if because they're clearly there when their mother and father get killed or taken or whatever happens to them. Mm. And if, if they build the other bits up and they show a bit more backstory, that's what would make them even more terrible. Like, I'm not saying to the point that sometimes too much backstory makes things less scary because you lose mm. that, that mystery on it. But they, they just needed to look better, I think, because I just don't think they look very like I'm um, I'm not particularly tall on like average height but I would just drop kick them <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that was uh, the, the, what they should have done obviously just start kicking them back through yeah, the just, window just I mean it. I will say they were bigger than a gremlin <laughs> yeah the gremlins like gremlins look scary you know like rats are they're bigger than rats but I'm not going to kick a rat <laughs> Kick an elf though. I, I, I think I could kick a rat. I mean, that's the, the, You'd the kick least. A rat. Oh I, I think gosh. that's the least bold statement you could make. But yeah, I think I could kick a rat. If I yeah. if I genuinely fe- felt threatened, I could kick a rat. Rats, or they just go about their business. Oh, I know. You... Well, I, I'm not saying I would. I wouldn't you just randomly kick a rat. <laughs> I'm talking about kicking a rat in self-defense. <laughs> I'm not kicking. I don't want to kick it just a, an helpless rat. I'm not a monster. <laughs> Rats aren't going to mug you, Steph. It's fine. <laughs> That's what they want you to think of. <laughs> I had pet rats. They, they mug no one. <laughs> yeah, but they were in cages. Of course, well, they didn't mug anyone with it. Well, mug, some of the time. Muggers don't kill anyone with it. Mug anyone with it in cages. That's why prisons <laughs> were invented. Um, moving on from rats. My fourth and final chapter is called uh, Gremlins Was Already Taken. Because I'm not fucking mad, right? And I don't want to do Alice's job for a year. And I do genuinely love Krampus. It's brilliant. It's a fun film. But Gremlins is the best Christmas horror ever. Of course it is. It's it's possibly the best Christmas film ever. Like, Krampus itself is like a love letter to Dante. There's so many little things in it that clearly are nod to things like Gremlins. There's nothing that I could pick that would beat Gremlins. I could have gone completely the other way and picked something that was really dark or picked something that was completely mad and bonkers. 
But Gremlins is clearly the easy winner. Like it's the best Christmas film that exists, without a doubt. Not just horror; it's the best Christmas film. So yeah, second I'm, best Christmas film certainly. I don't want to. I don't want to declare. I don't want to concede or anything. But yeah, I pick Krampus because you pick Gremlins because you were quick off the mark. <laughs> um. So I have a Christmas tradition that I totally stole from a friend of mine, which is um. I watch Gremlins and I wrap all my presents. So I wrap yeah. all my presents when I'm watching Gremlins. And this year I did that with a glass of Prosecco on a fire uh, and it was lush. Um, and Gremlins is just a great movie, isn't it? I'm quite, a, I'm quite a slow rapper, so I tend to get through more than one film. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, uh, I, I usually will move on out to doing um, other, other Christmas films that we could have considered. And I, yeah. I, remember, but I once built a whole bike and I got an hour into, into watching a film and so engrossed in it, I realised that's all I'd done was the handlebars. <laughs> I was like, shit, i got to get a move on. It's two o'clock in the morning. But uh, yeah, realistically, that, that Krampus isn't anywhere near as good as, as Gremlins is. I, I love it a bit, but it's not. Well, I'm going to subvert my own choice here a bit. I think it depends <laughs> what you want from it. I, I think Gremlins is a more rounded film it's certainly more rounded film and the bits fit together better. But but Krampus isn't trying to do that, is it really? Krampus is just trying no. to be fun. And and the, the comedy bits are comedy enough for me and the horror is genuine horror. And I think tonally it sits in the right place. It's not as good as Gremlins, clearly. But, you know, it, it's not massively far off. It's a great film. And if I... It, it has become a bit of a tradition to watch it every year because my son loves it, especially. So he's 12 now when he watched it. Uh, he would have been 10 when he watched it for the first time. So we've watched it. This is the third year running when we've watched it, and he loves it. But we watch Gremlins as well. We tend to watch these films sort of in the build-up to Christmas for, for a week or two beforehand. Mm. And I, I, I genuinely mean, like, I love it. It's a great film. It's so much fun to watch. It's ge- and I said it last week while doing Monster Squad, like, don't underestimate the power of a film just being fun. Because I think sometimes people forget that we look so much for the depth and the the social commentary and thing. And I know I'm one of the ones who does it, but just a fun film is great. Well, I think, Netflix, but it's also not as fun as Gremlins. So no, Netflix ruined watching stuff for me to a degree because now with Netflix and you have these twelve episode things and stuff. Sometimes I just want an hour and a half of fun. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I don't really need story arcs. Before we were recording, we talked about Buffy. I always prefer Monster of the Week episodes of Buffy or the X-Files over story arc episodes. And, you know, that kind of funny. I'm I'm there for that. And that's why I, quite, I really like Krampus. This is another film along with Inside that you introduced me to. Very different films. Both that aren't necessarily in my wheelhouse, but I really enjoyed both films. But you didn't like Monster Squad, and I still haven't forgiven you for that. <gasps> you don't like Monster Squad? Thank you, Alex. It was all right. It was, it was okay. Oh. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you not like it, or do you think it's okay? Because those are different. No, no, it was, it was, it was good fun. Backtrack now. Okay. <laughs> it, it was good fun. And I did like Ginger Snaps, I'll be honest about that. Uh, but, I uh, love Ginger Snaps. Ginger Snaps man. is amazing. See, yeah. if I, I said you, you book guests, so then... And then I end up losing. <laughs> um, before we go on to you making your judgment on which film you think is better, which I'm sure is going to be a massive shock to everybody, um, <laughs> is there any other films that you can think of that would fit quite well? Um, do you just want 
horror comedy or just just horror Christmas? Or... Just horror Christmas. Um, well, the, the original Black Christmas. Have you guys yeah. not seen that? I'm glad you said the original. Yeah. <laughs> um, is there a Blumhouse remake of it? There is, yeah. yeah. Is it Blumhouse? Uh, I mean, it, it may or may not be. That was, I think the thing with that was it was meant to be more horror, but then they wanted to appeal to uh, young girls, so they cut all the gore out. And put, um, um, and put Michelle Trachtenberg from Buffy in the... Uh, Whichever one, because is the, there's been another one no, again recently. Yeah, yeah. So that one is the middle one, which is all about stealing people's eyeballs. And well, then... I haven't seen the newest one then. <laughs> the newest one was meant to be like a 15, and then or an 18, and then they've made it like a PG. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. But the original is great. The original is super creepy, and if you ignore all of like Jello movies, could be considered like the first slasher. Um, and it's just super creepy um, and very unnerving. It's, you know, uh, a sorority of girls getting creepy calls uh, and get picked off one by one. And just the dynamics, like a lot of those movies where everyone's like living together, like characters can be quite annoying. But in Black Christmas, the um, 70s one, everyone feels very like, like they are a group of sorority. They do seem interesting. They're just interesting characters and they die in really cool ways. Someone dies with a um, glass unicorn being stabbed with a glass unicorn. Yes. So, you know, that. I, I'm not a huge fan of slashes, but that is one of the ones I genuinely like. I, yeah, I, it's a good one. It feels inventive. It feels the deaths are interesting. Like you say, yeah. the characters are believable. It's, I yeah. think it's one of the better ones. And it's not a movie, but if you ever watch Tales from the Crypt, you guys yes. watch um, the second the ever first ever series the second episode of that is a Christmas episode and it's really good <laughs> oh, I didn't um, know that one yeah no, there's like there's a maniac Santa on the loose and a woman locked in a house and he's trying to get in it's only like half an hour however long those episodes were but it's great it's really good in, in terms of other Christmas horror films one that you kind of suggested to me Steph as did Murray a guy who listens to the pod as well yeah. Santa's sleigh with Bill Goldberg, the wrestler, the wrestler in it is the most ludicrous thing I think I've ever seen in my life. It has a good opening, but that film yes. goes downhill massively. Oh after. yeah, it's, it, like, I mean, it runs it, out of steam. The it, the dinner scene is fun, and then it stops being fun. I but. I've not seen it for a while. Am I right to say in the opening scene he drones someone in eggnog? <laughs> it's it's got the nanny in it. I can't remember what her name is. Um, you know, did you ever watch the nanny? Yeah, Bobby Fleckman out of uh, Spinal Tap. I can't think yeah. of her actually. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's in it. Um, it it's, a, it's a bonkers film. And he just yeah. spends the whole time scowling and yeah. looking angry. It, it's utterly bizarre. I mean, it, it's, it is what it is. Sometimes I love a crap horror, and that definitely falls into um, that category. I've forgotten what the, the Feral Santa movie's called. Elf. No, it's... Um, <laughs> Come on, you must know why. Well, you've got rare Yeah, yeah. That's the film I've got. That's the film that I lost when I was meant to be building a bike because I got so caught up in that film and the extra twist that it takes when you think they've uncovered Santa and then you yeah. find out that's just one of the elves. <laughs> this massive giant Such a good film. That's yeah. a really, I really enjoyed that so much. Yeah. Which 
I say that hopefully uh, each Christmas we can we can keep picking Christmas films until we get down to things the standard of Santa's sleigh, uh, because there are some awful ones out there. I don't know if you've seen as well. Um, I've only seen the trailer. There's a film called Santa Joe's, whereby um, it's it's a Christmas shark <laughs> because obviously, well, I, why wouldn't they be? Um, I'll ho, put the trailer ho, on our on our Twitter. Oh my word! <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm genuinely perfect. <laughs> this is where the horror channel really comes into its own as well, because they end up showing um, showing some. Obviously, inside is set at Christmas, but I wouldn't go as far as to call it a Christmas horror. Uh, Anna, oh. the apocalypse, which we also mentioned in our, yeah, our musical ones, is set at Christmas as well. Uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night, Deadly Night. Is uh is there? And then I don't really know beyond that. If I'm honest. Well, well, we are missing two clear horror films. So the Jim Carrey Grinch movie starts <laughs> like a slasher, in that teenagers in a place they shouldn't be, two lads trying to lead girls come across mm-hmm. something horrific. Well, you know, rest of it's terrible, but that bit's all right. And then the greatest Christmas film and the greatest Christmas horror film, and there is a horror film, and I almost picked it until I realised. I'll just get a reputation for never picking horror films on a horror podcast. Home Alone. It, they are absolutely horrific, and they are deaths. The fact that they keep coming back, those men are dead. There's no way you're dropping an iron on someone's head and they're not dying. Oh, but, have you seen... Um, you, uh, I think it's called Better Watch Out. That's a Netflix yes, film, isn't it? Yes, they, yes. There's a bit in that where they're like, let's Home Alone someone, and they drop a can of paint like swing it into someone's face and it like absolutely smashes his skull <laughs> yeah better watch out took a turn that i wasn't expecting as well yeah. that doesn't end the way you thought it was going to end no no I, i've not seen that i need to see that one but when well, the, someone gets home alone <laughs> <laughs> yeah spoiler someone gets uh, home alone. Uh, the, what spoiled christmas about two years for me was when my wife refused to uh, buy the house from uh, home alone when it was up for sale you know, admittedly, mm. we would have needed a 200-year mortgage to pay for it because it was $3.5 million. Every so a often, hell of a commute. Mm. <laughs> every, every so often, the Space House comes up, and I always think about that. Like, I should buy the Space House. Um, I'm sure that wasn't $3.5 million or, like, the, the home alone. I mean, it's, it's in London now, so it's probably $5 million. <laughs> yeah, so easier commute, though, you know, because Chicago yeah. to, uh, to the UK yeah. is a bit tricky. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's um, what's the what's the the killer snowman one as well? Jack Frost, Jack Frost. which is a, a terrible film, famous for the the shower scene with Shannon mm. Elizabeth in. It is a yeah. bad film. But I'm not. But the, is that is there any others? Oh, I mean, there's Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, and my me and my son Reg, we have the, the argument of is it a Christmas film or is it a Halloween, it's a Halloween film? film? I think it's a Christmas film. Yeah, well, you think I mean, it's 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 mostly it starts at Halloween and it, but its main question is that it's set at Christmas. Yeah. And Christmas is in jeopardy, and and there was growth and resolution. So I mean, well, so if just, we're following our rules, you are correct. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually glad that um, Tim Burton didn't direct Gremlins because he, he was tipped for it for a little bit, but 
um, it, it's definitely stronger for having Joe Dante yeah. make it I, than, than Johnny Tinder. Depp playing Billy. Yeah. Eleanor Bonham Carter in as uh, Winona Ryder as. Yeah, it would have been Winona Ryder back then. Yeah. Oh, I'd 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 love Batman Returns. I'd, it's good. Also, it's a Christmas, Christmas yeah, movie. Also a Christmas film. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think Mistle, it's a lot. Mistletoe is deadly if you eat it. A kiss is even deadlier if you eat it. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you know what's not a Christmas movie? But I watch it every single Christmas. I watch LA Confidential every Christmas. The opening scene is also at Christmas. I, I was not expecting that. <laughs> no, no. It's enough for me. I love LA Confidential. It's a great, it's a truly great film. Yes, I've never generally seen... w- watch it every single year. I watch at Long Christ- Kiss Goodnight. I, I watch Long Kiss Goodnight at Christmas. Yeah, I, I don't think I could find enough time in my schedule to watch LA Confidential every Christmas. It feels like it's about three years long. <laughs> it, yeah, it's it's long, but like you notice different things and new things every single time, and everyone's yeah. so good in it. I, um, I don't mean that it feels long as in you start to go on when's this could win. I mean, it feels yeah. long because it's actually long. <laughs> yeah, it's actually just long. Um, yeah, it's great. Love it. Oh, and the other thing that I watch every Christmas pretty much is The Apartment, which again is set on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, basically, and New Year. But I'm not sure you'd call it a Christmas movie. Like Shirley MacLaine tries to kill herself in someone's apartment on Christmas Eve. And he's like, you can't go anywhere because you have to do it again. Uh, just bond. Have you seen I it? Yeah, I have. Yeah, it's a wonderful film. I have an argument every year with a colleague about Christmas music, and uh, I hate Christmas music. But I think "River" by Joni Mitchell is one of the truly great songs. And my my colleague always say, "Well, it's a Christmas song," and I say, "It's not a Christmas song. It's about a woman splitting up with someone. It's just set at Christmas." Yeah, one of those (laughs) things is. That seems yeah. to be something I say an awful lot. Yeah, you, you seem very caught up on the semantics of Christmas, Gav. I think you need to let it go. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that, that's my PhD thesis my, sorted out there. The uh, semantics. semantics of Christmas. <laughs> I mean, I think I think anything is Christmas if it has the word Christmas in it, basically. Like, my favourite Christmas song is um, Tom Waits' A Christmas Card from a Hooker in Minneapolis. But it doesn't really, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really mean anything Christmas at all. So... <laughs> That's a great film. <laughs> so, I think on that note, we'll, we'll wrap her up there. Uh, Alice, for anyone listening, where can people find you? Um, on Twitter, um, Alice Taylor M. Um, and if you are in Bristol or around, um, I do a monthly show at the Bristol Improv Theatre um, called Tales of Adventure, which is a live D&D show. Uh, and usually when there's gigs about, I'm also gigging. So, come Fantastic. So that's all that's left is for me to say thank you, Alice, for joining well, us. We also need the official judgment. I did this last time. <laughs> I get too excited. Um, I mean, it will come as, as no surprise to anyone, um, but uh, Gremlins is, is, is the way. Yeah, of course it is. Um, and Gremlins 2 would probably be above Christmas as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's even set at Christmas, is it? Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Oh, you missed an opportunity there, Steph. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, actually. I didn't think it was for some reason. Yeah, no, it is uh, Christmas. <laughs> I'm not saying you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Just like it is, though. I, I think well, Alice I am, is cool. I am doubting myself now, but I'm sure, I'm sure um, I've seen people carrying presents in it. 
I think Alice has proven herself as a true gremlin scholar amongst us. So, you know, it's uh, I'm not doubting it. No, I, I'm fully willing to accept it. And I, I I'm going to have to go and watch Gremlins 2 now. And then <laughs> get back to you. Um, so, on that note, all that's left is to say thank you, Alice Rennes. You've been absolutely excellent. Thank you, Cal, for joining me as always and extending your lead even further over me. And <laughs> Thanks to you for listening. Thanks very much. Bye now. Bye. Thanks all.